Operation Not Forgotten has, in about two weeks, rescued 26 children and safely located 13 others in Georgia through the good work of U.S. Marshals, in conjunction with other law enforcement agencies. Also, an Iranian pastor and his wife have escaped imprisonment after years of persecution. We're going to discuss all of this along with the Bible study, looking at what missions look like and evangelism in the post-2020 world. So many things have been reset in the world around us. So what should we expect from missions? We're going to talk about all of that and more. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor here at Kingdom of the Lagos, and there are two others here with me in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And Pastor Amanda, would you open us up in prayer as we begin? Of course. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your many blessings. We pray that you would be with us in the studio and those who are listening, that you would provide your peace and your wisdom. We also pray in the midst of these storms that are happening that you would continue to be with your people across the United States and in the Caribbean who've been affected by these storms, uh, that you would provide healing and comfort and safety and enable your church to act. We, ha we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as we begin, we're going to jump into a, a story which comes out of Iran, which is very important. You know, a lot of the news that we get curated for us here in America is kind of tailored in one direction. But we there's so much going on in the world that we as the church, we should be paying attention to. And I want us to go to this story, which comes out of Iran. And it regards Pastor Victor Bet Tamraz and his wife, Shamaram, who have escaped really some wicked and unjust prison sentences in Iran, which basically are, are centered around their Christian faith. I mean, they, they have done nothing but be accused of unauthorized gatherings. And if you know anything about Iran, this is not a place where they really have much tolerance for the Christian faith at all. Now, these two, they have successfully made it into hiding, where they can presumably continue their ministry and the, the legal battle that they face. Now, just to give a little bit of context to this, this couple, they have been given a 10-year and 5-year year prison sentence, and this comes after years of persecution. They've, they've experienced things like solitary confinement. Um, Victor himself, he spent 65 days at one time in solitary confinement. And you may have heard of this pastor before. And if you haven't heard of him, you've certainly heard of others like him, other missionaries, pastors, or just general Christians who have been persecuted for their faith in this part of the world. And this is some interesting news that we need to talk about and dissect because there's a broader understanding we can have about our faith and how we interact with the world. And to give you a little bit of history behind Pastor Victor and his wife just in particular, they're, they used to be with the Assyrian Pentecostal Church of Tehran. Um, some, some things have shifted with all of that, but he was arrested initially in 2014 at Christmas. They were having sort of a church gathering, and some plainclothes officers came in there and started separating the men and women out and started arresting people, and they arrested them on the charge of unlawful and unauthorized gathering. Now, not all the Christians there were arrested that day, but over the coming years, they, they were, and they sorted through there taking Bibles, mobile phones, identification, and really just wrecking these people's lives, and... What we found is that eventually they, they had his wife, too, and they arrested her. And, again, through years of, of really brutal things there, and I hate to call it a justice system, kind of lack thereof. But eventually they were sentenced in 2017, and they have gone through a lot of stuff. But here in August of 2020, um, they managed to escape. They managed to escape, and they're kind of in hiding now, so no one is really officially released where they're at, which is, is a good thing. But there are some interesting things to talk about this. So I just kind of want to open up the, the floor here for us to have a conversation on this. Um, Pastor Mike, what is your reaction to this? Well, you know, I, I, there's a lot going on that we you kind of see on the, on the surface, but down deep, the entirely uh, escape. Um, and everything, you know, I, you know, I don't think they've ever stopped ministering, even uh, with guards and things of that nature. Uh, I, I really think that that God is using them in a powerful statement. And we're here right now talking about the testimony of how God is working for them to flee. But yeah, I, I think uh, for them, they have a powerful testimony that is going to be shared more and more. Uh, Pastor Amanda, what are your thoughts on this whole situation? Well, I, I think it, it's something, um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like something we could have read out of the book of Acts, uh, escaping from prison and, and things like that. And it's, um, like you were saying earlier, sometimes 
Uh, we get so focused on some current events that are happening in, in our circle and in our spheres, we forget there's a whole world that's still existing and moving and, and evil doesn't take a break just because there's a pandemic going on. And so it is um, also, I think it's very smart in the story. It, it's not trying to say where they are or even give um, like speculation on that because obviously it's an ongoing story and we, we don't want to put them in harm. Um, I, I think... Um, also, you know, Pastor Mike brought up like them, their testimony, even as they're fleeing. Uh, we're in the book of Acts. We're reminded that because of the persecution in Jerusalem, everyone left but the original apostles. And because of that, Philip goes to Samaria and starts to work there. He then goes and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and great ministry happened even while the church was being not only persecuted, but while they were fleeing and traveling. And so we find that great things can happen wherever uh, this couple may find themselves. Sure. Pastor Mike? Well, and uh, of course, we see Apostle Paul as well in prison and doing work in prison. So, you, you know, um, God works even when they try to, um, you know, evil tries to uh, imprison people. The gospel is not going to be imprisoned. The message is going to go out that there's freedom and there's hope and there's, uh, you know, perfect justice found in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. Well, let's move to another example of, well, justice being served on a very different spectrum. So we've we've talked a lot here in the last few weeks about the great evils that are committed against children here in America. This is something which, thankfully, the winds are starting to, to change on this topic where you no longer sound like a kook for talking about all of these people who be in the media, political, Hollywood elites who come and they, they really abuse children and how there's, there really are these massive webs of, of children trafficking. There's a lot of children in America who've been born here who are, who are raised for really wicked stuff who are killed and they, it's, it's wicked from the gates of hell. And it is so, so terrible. We've talked a lot about that, but some good news has cropped up in this. Um, and it involves the U.S. Marshals. Um, some really good news has has come to light uh, from the U.S. Marshal Service. And this is something that has been called Operation Not Forgotten. And this is from actually August of 2020. This is something which has happened here in the last few days. And the U.S. Marshal Service they effectively put together this operation and in two weeks and the timeline on this is so important because you got to keep in mind the u.s marshal service they they typically are hunting fugitives and people of that nature they are a federal law enforcement agency but they're not like the fbi in the sense that they are tasked with investigating in the same way this is a different end of law enforcement however when i i share some of this stuff with you you're going to see these guys need to be put in charge of this because they do a great job these guys and gals are pretty intense and i've got some pictures i'll share with you here in a moment too Um, So essentially what has happened here with Operation Not Forgotten is here in Georgia in the last two weeks, they have successfully rescued 26 children and they have located in a safe location of 13 children and they have arrested nine different criminal associates. Additionally, investigators cleared 26 arrest warrants and filed extra charges for alleged crimes relating to sex trafficking, parental kidnapping, registered sex offender violations, drugs and weapons possessions, and custodial interference. Now, the 26 warrants that were cleared included 19 arrest warrants for a total of nine individuals. And of course, some of those had multiple warrants out for them. So one of the things which is really phenomenal about this, and and, and I I really do um, find this just to be so, so phenomenal, is that when you look to last year and you see what has gone on with the uh, U.S. Marshal Service in this, is last year they had successfully recovered 295 missing children based on request from other law enforcement agencies, which keep in mind, these cases, they're not starting and originating with the U.S. Marshal Service. There's things that are coming up to them. And the reason why that's so important is because with children being abducted and things of that nature, the timeline is very, very finicky. And the further away you get from the initial loss of the child, the harder it is to get them back. But last year, they helped recover 295 missing children, which was 75% of the cases that they had received. So these these guys and gals here that you see in these pictures, they have a 75% success rate of recovering children that have been wrongfully gone missing for whatever reason. Again, missing children, there's a lot of reasons for that. And they're all evil. I'm not here to, to you know, rate out which evil is worse than another. All these evil cases, they have a 75% chance of of rescuing the children or 75% success rate. So these these are some, some people you need to be dealing with here. 
And on top of that, within the time frame of them receiving a case, they have recovered children within seven days, 66% of the time. So two thirds of the time, these guys and gals are able to get a child back. So that is just phenomenal, phenomenal. Since their their partnership became in this, they've which was back in 2005, they've helped recover more than 1,800 missing children. Hmm. And a, a statement from Darby Kirby, who is the chief of the missing child unit, says the following. It says, we track down fugitives, and it's a good feeling to know that we're putting the bad guys behind bars. But that sense of accomplishment is nothing compared to that of finding a missing child. It's hard to put into words what we feel when we rescue a missing child, but I can tell you that this operation has impacted every single one of us out here. We are working to protect them and get them the help they need. So these men and women that you see in these photos that I've got scrolling here, these are real, real heroes going out, standing up to evil, recovering children. And this is this is just a, a wonderful, wonderful news to be released from the U.S. Marshal Service, this operation not forgotten. You know, we get so wrapped up in things like politics and, and things of that nature, which want to gather all of our attention. But this is some good news that deserves attention. We've talked about this and to see... What can actually happen when we mobilize to deal with something like this? You know, if, if YouTube and Facebook, they can pull down a video on hydroxychloroquine in a few hours, you wonder why in the world is child porn still out there if they can censor something so quickly? Well, you look at this report from the U.S. Marshal Service and it tells you they can actually use technology and stuff to hunt this stuff down pretty quickly and use it in a good way. So many times we see evil forces take use of modern technology, but these men and women, they're using it in a very righteous manner, and I'm I'm all for it. I, I think it's great. So I'll just open the floor up and see what y'all's thoughts are on this. This is good news on that subject matter. Yeah, I think definitely. And, and I mean, obviously it's very good news, and we hope that they can continue this momentum and it to spread, and these resources uh, can continue to be available across the United States, and other law enforcement agencies can work together uh, to continue this. Um, I think that something that struck me is when you were talking about the warrants that were uh, issued, you, you had mentioned that it was parental kidnapping and custodial interference were some of them. And I think this is something that we need to remind ourselves that the, that human trafficking, uh, child trafficking, um, and things like that, it, it doesn't happen just far off in some forgotten corner of the world. This, this happens right next door to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes... Uh, parents or parental figures or um, those who are in charge of a child's care can actually be involved in these things. And so for the everyday person, we need to be alert and aware. We need to have eyes to see and ears to hear um, and pay attention to what's happening around us and especially in the lives of our children and youth and watch out for warning signs that whether it's abuse or trafficking or anything um, to make sure that we're aware of this uh, so that we can be a helpful a part in in taking care of the children and youth of our community. Yeah, absolutely, Pastor Mike. Your thoughts on this? Well, obviously, these like I said, the numbers are are good. I wish they were even better. So this is good news. I'd like for it to be better news. I'd, and as uh, as Pastor Amanda said, you know, I think there's a healthy understanding for us all to be aware. Uh, you know, I know Pastor Amanda has had videos. Uh, my wife has done videos at church to try to help people. Uh, see the red flags and and things that we need to step up um, as people um, and most of all the people of God and not just rely totally upon the federal government to do these things and I am for the federal government doing it but I think we have to take that initiative too to be aware I I do love the idea that this is a I mean, to me, this is good use of federal tax dollars. And there's so many frivolous things out there. I'd love to see them double and triple, especially when you're getting results like this, uh, that program, because, you know, our hearts uh, are there for children. And, you know, God loves the little children. Do not refuse them to come see him. And I think it's this is really good news. And I'd love to see it e- even grow and be better. Yeah, I would too. Which, again, look, I'm not complaining. If they've got a 75% like success rate, Praise God. more power to them. That, mm-hmm. That's not a complaint thing. Yeah, that, it's a very honorable thing for them to do. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm pleased with those numbers. I'd, I'd like to see them better, though. Yeah. Uh, 
And and again, what fascinates me is this is the U.S. Marshal Service. Mm-hmm. So, and again, the U.S. Marshal Service, they generally, you think of them transferring prisoners between states, going out and, and catching fugitives, people who have escaped, things of that nature. Because we have around 30 federal law enforcement agencies actually in the U.S. Pe- a lot of people don't realize that. We have a whole lot of them. You think of things like the FBI, obviously, being kind of the, the poster child of it. But there's actually about 30 different federal law enforcement agencies which have um, kind of an original jurisdiction around all federal territories. And what you find so fascinating about this is each of those agencies are tailored to different things. And the U.S. Marshal Service, you know, they're not Mulder and Scully, <laughs> even though we reference that. They're not your FBI investigators. They're not that sort of like FBI spook looking for something. They are, um, they're not quite, you know, dog the bounty hunter either but they're they're more in that direction of the spectrum they're a lot more serious mm-hmm. they they take a very aggressive stance to stuff and their their expertise and the way they're tailored is for dealing with with really hardened criminals who have already gone through the justice system and they're they're dealing with that and to see this group of people be the ones tasked with this and to have such a very successful uh, number there is is quite phenomenal to me and so you know mate, this is the angle we need we need this mm-hmm. this this well, yeah, energy. Sometimes you need the sword and sometimes you need a scalpel. And, and I think they're, they're closer maybe to the sword. And that's what we need right now yeah. in this particular situation. Um, and they are highly trained um, and, and uh, highly educated people who, who have been trained and educated for a very specific person purpose and that is to uh, bust down doors and <laughs> yeah um, to, to bust down doors and rescue children yes and and that, that's good yeah and especially again that timeline it diminishes so quickly when children go missing mm-hmm. and in two weeks they're out there wrapping this stuff up and, and again keep in mind it starts off usually at local levels it takes several hours it's going to take a while maybe even days before it reaches them and for these these people to have this level of success you know well it's pretty impressive so mm-hmm. We're going to come back with the Bible study, but I did just want to bring some attention to you. Um, Operation Not Forgotten, check it out. There, There's some cool links to it. You can just do a search for that, Operation Not Forgotten. And the U.S. Marshals actually have a nice little thing put up for it that's that's officially theirs. It's a very, very interesting thing to look up. Um, so so God God be with them. Godspeed to that that situation. So we'll be back with a, a Bible study, and we're going to talk about missions a little bit. we got a fun open-ended question for everyone here, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. So we'll be back here in a moment. All right, as we come back together, we're going to have a bit of a Bible study on missions. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Pastor Amanda and Pastor Mike a open-ended question. I'm going to let things unfold. And it really relates to our world right now. 2020 has reset a lot of things in our world. They, it's really reset how we interact with one another. And a lot of this is is unfortunately been for the, for the worse, not for the better. But as the church, we move on. The world wants us to feel depressed and angry. But you know what? In the kingdom of God, God wants us to have joy. Throughout Scripture, God always wants His people to have joy, even in the midst of great persecution. So yes, it is okay to feel joy in your life. And when it comes to the joy of doing the work of the Lord, we have to have some initiative. We have to have some some impulse that says, let's go out and let's happily spread the gospel. So I have a question for Pastor Amanda and Pastor Mike today, and I'm going to ask this to you all as well. So feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, and comments. If you are in charge of a missions program in our modern world, what would your expectations be? That's the question. If you were to be put in charge of a new missions program, what would that look like? And let me let me let this marinate for a second. I'm they're over there thinking, their gears are working, and I want to let this marinate in their brains for a second. So that's kind of a big question. You know, imagine that you woke up and the nostalgia of what life was like for, say, the last 10, 15 years, that's just gone. The, the world is as it is here in 2020. You've got to make do with it, and you've got to move forwards. How would you actually start a missions program? If you just take away all the baggage that we've had over the last few generations, again, we're not throwing away like Christian tradition or anything like that, but it's kind of the nostalgia we've grown up with, what would our missions look like? And just for me to add a few thoughts in here while this is marinating for a second, you, know, you can look throughout Christian history. You see someone like Mary Magdalene who she goes before the 
Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar, and she kind of has a debate-style evangelism with him. And she goes to the world's most prominent city. All the eyes of the world are really looking at her. She tells the story of Christ. She holds up the egg, and and Caesar says, you know, it's it's no more likely that that man would rise from the dead than the egg you're holding would change hands. She holds up the egg, and the egg changes colors, and um, which... I mean, I don't know that she was expecting that, but the egg changes colors. Caesar doesn't think it'll happen. And, you know, there's there's this whole movement which happens where people come to, to Christ in that moment. And the legends go and they we have things like the Fabergé eggs. We have Easter eggs now, like the whole story of Mary Magdalene. It went into long-term memory immediately for the whole world. But you also have contrasting that someone like St. Patrick who humbled himself and he returned to a land where he had been a slave. You know, it's a death sentence to for a slave to run away. He went back to the people who enslaved him. He kind of went from being in the most prominent part of the world to the outskirts of the world where nobody really wanted to go. People wanted to be done with him. They wanted to be done with the Druids in Ireland. And St. Patrick goes out there, he humbles himself, and he has a slow but very fruitful ministry that takes the place really over generations as he witnesses to people. And he, he builds up the church in a beautiful way. Um, you even look throughout the, the Holy Scriptures. You look in the book of Acts and you see someone like Ananias who is just a disciple in Damascus. We don't know a lot about him, but the Lord comes to him in Acts chapter 9 and says, Ananias. And Ananias answered, Here I am, which sounds a lot like Samuel. Um, Like, I don't know if we're reading New Testament or Old Testament in that line. But anyway, he says, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord says to him, he says, Get up and go to the street called the Straight, and you'll find there in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And, And, you know, Ananias is like, Whoa, that guy's done some terrible, evil things, Lord. And... Ananias, he, he does anyway. God tells him, like, he's like, look, he's going to be a great tool of mine. And Ananias is like, okay. And Ananias confronts Saul in, in Acts 9, 17, saying, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you, you can kind of see further down the road, you know, that's a big deal, Ananias going to meet. I mean, a lot of us might say, oh, but he knew from God that he would be used as a tool. How many times do we know that the victory is won for us in life, but we don't go out and do what we should do? You know, that, that's kind of the story of, of, of the people of God. God tells Abraham and Sarah, this is going to happen. And they're like, oh, maybe not. Maybe I won't be righteous. Maybe. Um, you know, but to actually go out and do that. Ananias, he, he goes up and stands to something um, which had been evil. He goes and confronts that. But then later in Acts chapter 16, you know, with Paul and his ministry there they in verse 14 they go in a certain woman named Lydia who was a worshiper of God she listened to us and she was of the city of Thyatira and a dealer of purple the Lord opened her heart equally to what was said by Paul and then she with her household they were baptized you know they meet her down at the river it's not some big confrontation that happens in a big populous place or even the ends of the earth it's just kind of not that far out of Paul's way but he goes over there and ministers to her and good things happen so Now that I've let this marinate, we've seen some different missionaries throughout the course of both scripture and Christian history. We've looked at the four people there real quick. Um, What would your expectations of missions be? This is the world, 2020. Don't bank on things changing. But what would you want in of a missions program? So who would like to go first? Well, yeah, I'll go first. You know, I think, first of all, I think we've damaged the whole understanding of missions by somewhat you know bringing it into a a ministry uh or a program where it really should be a practice in every christian's life that we every time we every person we encounter we're actually on the mission field i feel like uh, but with that being said i understand that often we are not um equipping people with the right skills to get in there so i think uh you, you have to bathe all these thoughts and 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 understandings and prayer as you know that's a language we've used for years but we really need to do that i think the the direction to go is the is to look at the the world and the need for actually trades of all things and uh, skills in this world to equip people in a trade at in a skill and we're doing that somewhat with something like um language uh, and teachers and different things but I, I think even a trade to bring them in where it's intentional and personal with people and and there there has to be a more of a hands-on type education so to speak rather than just read a book write a paper and send somebody <laughs> out um, there has to be 
uh, some practice. Um, I think, as, and when I say practice, I'm talking about um, you know a trade that you're able to do and work with people where there can there can be an appreciation going both ways. Yeah, and, and an appreciation of cause and effect relationships. Too, Absolutely, is, it's largely lost in our world. But what you're sounding like actually sounds like what a lot of the monastic movements sound like. I know we often think of monastic movements being mm-hmm. somebody out in the desert alone, but that's actually not the case for a good portion of Christian history. You know, a lot of times they would set up something in a city, whether it be a you know convent of women or some men getting together in their monastic thing. They would have a chapel that would be open to the public, and they would bring people in, and they would often have strict rules about trades that would come in. They would assign to different people different works. And this is something that would really elevate a lot of people. When you actually look through what we consider the dark ages of Europe, which actually weren't that dark, there's actually a lot of really beautiful history that happens there. A lot of young people, this would be a way that you could elevate the entire family. The church, you could send off um, the young in your church to become monks and nuns, and they would they would become, they wouldn't be clergy in the sense that like they're a priest, but they would become ministers and they would oftentimes have trades. They would run hospitals. They would run schools. They would do a lot of skilled work, whether it be something practical like carpentry. They would run a lot of all this stuff, and they would teach these skills to their to their young people that come in, and they would be able to pay for things back at their family. They would elevate them up, but they would build these institutions that they were set apart from society, but they were still completely accessible by society in the sense that people could go to church there. They would have their relics and things that they would all fight over and everybody wants to come touch the the finger of of Jesus's grandmother, stuff like that. But that kind of sounds a little bit like what you're talking about. I don't know if you... What yeah, your, your I think I would probably uh, point to the Shaker community, which is okay, very so. much like that in, yeah, sure. in a sense. Um, you know, the whole... I, I would like to see it be what I would consider still um, a family where it's not a a celibate, you know, community, you know, you still have marriages and husband and wives and things of that nature that that continue to to flourish. But I I know that they, when you think of the, the Shaker community, you often think of Shaker furniture, which they always um, you know, had some type of skill and trade that was, you know, in the world um, associating and trading with the world and and but at the same time they were bearing witness and it was it had a tremendous impact on a lot of people yeah interesting um pastor amanda what are your thoughts on all of this i kind of have two main thoughts which will probably like devolve into 20 small thoughts but anyways which that's that's (laughs) fine you can take this in a completely unrelated direction this is open-ended my one thought although you said like trying to like uh, alleviate ourselves from the nostalgia of the past some of my expectations are almost in what not to do or what not to expect um so that's yeah. kind of my first point um i think there's a weird thing we've done i'm, I'm going off also what pastor mike said where we've kind of over segmented out missions versus evangelism yeah. or what we do across seas versus what we do here which is just kind of ridiculous like to a certain extent it makes sense because we're talking about going cross-culturally versus not but the world is globalization has happened it is happening um so the ends of the earth are oftentimes across the street from you people are speaking a different language uh having a different worldview different cultural foundation than you uh so i'm not sure some of those over segmentations that we do missions versus home evangelism really exist anymore and shouldn't really exist anymore um now i'm in trouble with somebody in the nazarene church (laughs) if if anybody wants to send a a pitchfork over that send it to me i will gladly take that pitchfork i'll I'll stand by those comments yeah i'll take it too um but yeah so so i think there's a weird thing and i've been talking to my church about it because i've been at trinity since uh late 2011 so about nine years mike's was there about a year before i was um and there, I remember hearing this missionary story as a child about this missionary that worked and toiled hard in the mission field and didn't get a single convert for the first seven years of their ministry and then finally got a convert. And then it was like another long time before they could get the second convert. And there's something like we praise those missionaries for being faithful. And yet, if you're here in the United States, if you didn't get one convert for one year, like you must be the worst pastor ever. And there's this weird double standard we have. And I saw I reason I shared that with my particular congregation was telling them, listen, we need to be faithful. Um, we need to do the hard work. And sometimes that might mean seeing a hundred new converts in a year 
or in one event or one day. And sometimes that means you don't see one for seven years or longer. But that doesn't mean we're, we're not doing what we need to do. Now, we need to be careful and make sure we are doing what we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing. We need to be evaluating and reevaluating and evaluating and reevaluating. That's a continual process. But our faithfulness is not contingent on numbers. Our faithfulness is contingent on God. So we got to make sure that, and I think that's the other thing, like we got to have the right expectations of what we're actually doing. Are we just trying to get people into our club or are we transforming lives through the grace of God? So right expectations is where we need to start. And again, um, also we see in the story of Paul that uh, Pastor Dylan brought up, uh, it was a couple of years between his conversion until he's finally accepted in Jerusalem. It took time. It, Paul spent his whole life ministering to people. And there's even a missionary book, I think it was written in the 1920s, I want to say, maybe sooner than that. And all these people were looking through, in that time period, were looking through Paul's ministry and how he traveled from city to city to city. And they're like, there's some master plan involved here. Like, we need to take Paul's strategy and put it into our mission strategy. And this one guy writes a book and he just says, what if Paul just traveled? What if, what if there wasn't some grand mission strategy? What if it was just Paul traveling? And wherever he was, however he got there, whether because he was shipwrecked or he intentionally meant to go to that particular city, he ministered. You know, and that doesn't mean we don't have a strategy. That doesn't mean we don't plan. But what if instead of hinging all of our faith on ourselves and our intellect and our ability to make things work, what if we just ministered? Um, and again, that book's a hundred years old now and it's kind of being revived. Some people are revisiting and rereading it and it's fascinating. All right. Second point. I know I'm talking probably too much and I can stop. Oh, if no, you need to. please. Let okay. it unfold. Second point. And this is purely I've been studying uh, for this sermon coming up uh, this Sunday at my church. We're, we're doing a series on the kingdom of heaven and our specific passage is. It, there's this in-between section between when Jesus teaches the parable of the sower and before he gives the explanation of the parable, his disciples say, why do you even talk in parables? And Jesus gives this almost cryptic response, which to some may sound like almost Jesus is trying to hide a secret knowledge away from the crowds. But if we really look into what a parable is and to what Jesus is actually saying, and he references some things that happened in Isaiah 6, um, he's not hiding things. The point of a parable was to give the people a knowable uh, subject matter. So like farming or uh, kings and how kings interacted with their subjects or landowners or trees or birds. Like it was very knowable things in that agricultural world. And yet Jesus takes this common concept of a parable and he gives a twist at the end. And I think that's what's important is we're talking about missions and ministry and how we're going to minister. Um, education is vitally important, but how we educate is different than, than, than really the rest of the world's going to do it, even though the world is kind of rediscovering these dynamics in the educational sphere. Um, you start with something they know, but you never keep, keep people, keep students in their comfortable, uh, area. It's called the zone of proximal learning. So what they know, what you need to get them to know and how you get them there. And that's what Jesus does. He says, this is where you are. You can't understand the mysteries of heaven. So I'm going to tell you a story about a sower who goes out to sow seeds. But at the end of it, all of a sudden, you're somewhere you didn't think you could be. And all of a sudden, you have to dive in and discover and investigate the story because it's not just one point presented in the story. There's a hundred points in the story. And if you want um, to participate in the kingdom of heaven, you have to actually put in initiative. It's fascinating. Jesus basically invites people to participate in their own salvation. Jesus comes, he does the work, but he doesn't actually do everything. He invites us to respond and to act. And I think we have to do that as Christians and as ministers and as leaders. We don't have to do it all, which thank God. <laughs> we are called to empower our congregants and the, our community around us to take ownership of that and to grow into journey themselves. So those are kind of my two expectations if I were to lead missions. Um, I don't know if that would work, but that's my idea. Oh, I, I think those are some some great points you've you've had there, and I want to respond to those just briefly, and then I'll briefly share my own thoughts on this. You you kind of mentioned that it's it's not just the the numbers that matter, 
And, you know, I brought up the first of the the models I had was that of Mary Magdalene. You know, she's a big player in the Gospels, but you don't hear a tremendous a lot about Mary Magdalene. Like beyond that, you look in the book of Acts, you look through the letters of Paul and even into the book of Revelation. You, you kind of might think that she's fallen off the face of the earth a bit. But in truth, Mary Magdalene and even John himself, who who writes those epistles and, of course, the, just, the Gospel and then the, with the book of Revelation, they are players that are on the field a few decades after the work of Paul. Like you, you think of Paul, and Paul kind of steps into the thing in the book of Acts, but it's actually several years later, a long time later, that you find Mary, and even Mary, mother of Jesus, they they do great works, but it, it takes a while before their ministry kind of reaches that level of prominence that they do become really inspirational figures for Christ Jesus across the land. And so don't have heart, um, don't lose heart if it takes a few generations, a few decades for something to take root, because even when you look at the great uh, figures that we have in Christianity, several of them do take quite a while before they get there. You know, John, when the time he's writing these letters, and even the book of Revelation, you know, 40, 50 years have passed since the events that, that um, a lot of times are popularly um, associated with it, but it's a big gap of time between you see a lot of the martyrdom there in the book of Acts and what happens there in Revelation. So my thoughts on all of this, and just building off of what Amanda said there too, about how meeting people where they're at and taking them to somewhere new, we in the church have to, to really firmly understand what it means to take people to truth. Taking people to truth is not the same thing as taking people to a sanitized, clean environment. Now, God is pure. God is holy. But also, the blood and work on the cross was ugly. Um, it, was, it was gross. It was grotesque. When God calls people out, when you see the great battle between St. Michael, the archangel there in the book of Revelation, you know, I've been preaching Revelation on Wednesday nights, you see his battle with the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. That's not a, a pretty scene. Michael's probably not clean when he gets done decapitating <laughs> that dragon, you know. He's probably pretty pretty nasty. But the thing is, is we in the church, we have kind of overvalued sanitizing things to the point that we have to allow this to enter into the moral sphere and to truly teach the goodness of Christ Jesus, you have to show it in its full glory and say that God, he comes to be holy because he is, and he comes to cast out the darkness, and the darkness is real, folks. And really, my vision on missions in this world is very much connected with what Amanda said. You know, we've got to quit separating these things out. They're relevant in the world with us now. But to be willing to go out and tell people the truth, we need people who are kind of like those U.S. Marshals. Who are, they're, they're here. They're, they've got a list of names. They're going to kick down some doors, and they're going to rescue some children. They're not here to, to debate with some, some child predators. They're not here to have those conversations. They're here to cast out the darkness and to bless the least of these. And we as the church, we've been very shy about realizing that there's a great testimony in saying no. You know, the book of Nehemiah is largely saying no to shame, chaos, and Sambalat, Tobiah. You, you see a lot of the early martyrs that say no to Rome when Rome wants them to enter in houses of prostitution, do things in pagan temples, burn incense. They want them to do all these things, and the Christians just simply say no, and they get executed for it, and then people come to be baptized into the faith in mass. There's great testimony. You know, Amanda has often said, you know, preach the gospel and use words when you need to. You know, a great way that people have preached the gospel, unfortunately, has been by being killed in the amphitheater. You know, by going over to, to people, um, Vivia Perpetua, who's one of the, the saints in the church, she goes over while she's being martyred, and she asks one of the ladies to give her a hairpin so that she will look good when she goes to meet her Lord. And people, people go out in droves to be baptized by this. People standing up to evil, young men saying, no, we're not going to do that. People like St. Sebastian, who, who gets executed twice by Diocletian the first time unsuccessfully, but continues as a minister in the gospel, says, you know what? I'm going to do what is right and godly. I, you're not going to, to have me bow down to you. The great power in the testimony of saying no, it takes people to a, a beautiful holiness of God that is noble. Mm-hmm. So that's where we'll wrap this up. Any, any final thoughts? We feel pretty good on that conversation? Well, you know, I, I'd like to say that we are evangelical. And so that, that's a word that says, you know, we share the good news. The good news is that, that God is king in Christ Jesus. We're created in that image. And so, uh, you know, I think that the gospel cannot be watered down. And I think the pressure of trying to place an, an emphasis on numbers and the amount, I mean, sure, you want to reach as many people, as, but there must be a passion to share the good news. Sure. And even those who have accepted Jesus, they still need to hear that good news. And so the, the measuring system of people's growth is hard to report 
some way. You know, it's much easier to report numbers. But we have in the in the church, and I'm not talking about any particular church. I'm just being in general the church. You know, we've had a lot of not just denominations, but different uh, folks in the church so hungry to try to make those numbers that they have accepted anything, watered down the gospel, and got away from biblical teaching. Even furthermore, I I recently had uh, someone come to me and was telling me about the church they was at and said they was concerned because the pastor um, had baptized two people uh, twice within the same year, and he turned in the numbers as four (laughs) instead of two. And, you know, what I thought about that, and, you know, there's there's a— theological uh, and biblical understanding of baptism and evangelism and sharing the good news that God is king, king of our life. And when we are faithful in doing that, yes, it, it may cost us, you know, people are not going to like it. Uh, they martyred Christians for for centuries and still are martyring Christians, as we talked about that first segment. But, um, yeah. It, it, uh, it is good news to know that God is king. Yeah. So perfect justice. Just, just wrapping up some thoughts on that. You know, the mission field is here. It it's is here. with us. Don't, don't make the distinction think it's far away. And also, I see by no standard that the world is going to allow Regardless of if a pandemic goes away, regardless of any sort of unrest goes, our world, the the beast craves chaos. Mm. And there are many who will look upon the beast in amazement and worship it. And division. Beast creates, desires division, death, steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah, and and we have to realize how we're like now. We have to find our joy in God because it's okay to have joy. You should have joy. God wants you to have joy. Find joy and move forwards in missions. You know, our expectations don't don't expect, you know, just a bunch of numbers and stuff on paper, but do the good work, find joy and tell the truth of the gospel without you don't, you know, meet people where they're at and don't sanitize it. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we'll be back here in a second with a a bit of unholiness today as we wrap up our program. We're going to do something fun this weekend. All right, as we are coming back together, we're going to close out our program today by playing a bit of unholiness today. We, we play our different games here. We do buy, sell, and hold and all that stuff, giveth and taketh away. But today, I've got another little opening question that would be kind of fun. You know, people always talk about going on vacation and taking Sabbath and things, and we also like movies. We like pop culture, and so today we're going to have a nice little cross-section between vacationing, Sabbathing, and... Some terrible movies, which are actually really good movies, but terrible <laughs> settings in movies, I guess I should say. So I've got a question for Pastor Amanda and Pastor Mike, and I'll give my answer to it as well. Okay. Um, if you were to spend 10 days in one of the classic Steven Spielberg films, which I'm going to give you three choices. Mm. In other words, 10 days you have to survive in this film, or maybe you might thrive in it. <laughs> which of these three would you choose and why? So you're vacating for three, or in one of these three films for 10 days, and your mm. choices are Jurassic Park. Good, good classic Steven Spielberg film. Um, Jaws, mm. kind of is his first big one. And then Indiana Jones. Which of these would you prefer to spend 10 days in? Do you think you could survive and why? Which Indiana Jones are we just going for? Um, like, I don't. I'm going to say all of them. <laughs> okay. I'll leave that up to, to your interpretation, though. I was tempted to say the Temple of Doom. But then mm. I realized that so much of the Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is kind of what happens with Moses and the people <laughs> anyway. Like, if you if you do not follow the rules around the Ark of the Covenant, bad things happen. So I'll leave that one up to your interpretation. So the world of Indiana Jones. How about that? So, mm. Pastor Man, I'll let you go first if okay. you're already talking. <laughs> All right. Um, I think the one I would survive the most in would be Jaws because I just wouldn't go into the ocean. Uh, the the uh, antagonist of that story is pretty well contained uh, versus Jurassic Park. Obviously, the whole point of the story is that the antagonists aren't contained. Um, I would definitely... It, listen, any kind of, like, uh, apocalypse group, like a zombie movie or... 
Um, anything where the, there's multiple villains versus just one bad guy, I'm going to be the first one dead. Like, the, that's just the thing. <laughs> like, if the zombie apocalypse happens, I'm just going to be the tragic backstory for one of the main characters. I, I'm not one of the survival group. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I've resigned myself to that re reality. I, I have no um, t tactical or, or practical skills. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Jurassic Park, I would be very dead. Uh, Indiana Jones, I, I would survive, I think, the first movie. I think I would definitely die in the second one, and I might survive the third one, um, especially the the first and third one because they have to deal with some Christian matters that hopefully my education has prepared me for, <laughs> where I would know don't open the Ark of the Covenant. I know that one. I gotcha. Would, so, would you but. be able to get the, in um, the Last Crusade? Would you be able to solve all the puzzles there at the end? Would you make the leap of faith across the valley and I survive think, the I, saws and Jehovah okay, spelled within? Oh uh, yeah. I, I would get. I would not pass the first trial. The 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 uh, what a penitent man will pass. Yeah. I don't think I would survive because it's more than he just bows. Like he like Indiana Jones has to do like some cartwheels. So I would maybe get past the first Saul, but the second and third one would be potentially yeah, I, dangerous. I, I I hate to laugh at this, but imagine if you actually are penitent and trying to bow, <laughs> but you just have like a little bit of back pain that day. You're a little slow moving. Oh my gosh! Or you miss terrible. the one that's coming from the ground. Like it's more than just one Saul up near your head. Um, the, 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 the leap of faith, I think I might be able to do now spelling. I'm a horrible speller. So especially in a different language may not make the one spelling Jehovah. Um, but even Indiana Jones kind of messed up on that one. So maybe, I don't know, but the, the temple of doom, I'm pretty sure I would not make it through that one. Um, that would be completely out of my wheelhouse. I would die. So to answer your, your question specifically, if I had to pick one, it would be Jaws. Because then I could just enjoy the beach. I like even when I go to the beach, I don't play in the water much. I just like to sit and read. So I could survive Jaws okay. <laughs> that would yeah. be the only one. Yeah. Oddly enough, I'm most disturbed at Jaws. Maybe it's because <laughs> like man made things underwater like shunken sips just like terrify me more than the shark would. Mm. But but I would feel that Jaws is an inescapable terror. Though you pointed out a very good point that he's actually well contained <laughs> in the water. You just go away from the water, you're fine. But that would be the one that I would avoid the most. But anyways, Pastor Mike, what about you? If of these these three choices, which one would you choose for I, 10 days? Yeah, yeah, I would, hands down, Jura uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> Jurassic Park, no way. Um, Jaws is the least on that list. Uh, I went swimming with sharks one time, and it was, it was enjoyable until the chicken that they dropped down uh, in the basket ran, ran out, and... and <laughs> they were wanting more chicken and they did not put any more chicken and we were all on a rope and the first one out is the last one in and i was first one out so um i decided then somewhere between going out first and the moment that they said stop splashing we're pulling you in um uh, that was that was a moment that i realized uh, no, uh, never again do I need to go swimming with the sharks, nor would I want to be in Jaws for 10 days. But Indiana Jones, um, I think they're uh, it's great. And I, I think probably for me, what is it, the Knight's Crusade? I think I would the like that Crusade. one. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not, for 10 days, not sure I would survive in it. But, you know, there's an educational, a mystery, a treasure um, there, there's just, you know, and I'm surprised we haven't had um, like a, a Dead Sea Scroll searching for the gold um, in the temple, what it's called, the Copper Scroll uh, out of that. Uh, I'm surprised somebody hasn't made a, a, a movie with that already. That, that would have been a, a better... Yeah, it would be um, a better Indiana fourth Jones Indiana Jones, which we do, which doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't yes. exist. Um, <laughs> you know, nobody's brought up too much of the food and the bugs in the Temple of Doom, like the, eating yeah. that. I'm more just – I don't mind the bugs. Like uh, touching insects and stuff like that, yeah. and even touching snakes and stuff doesn't bother me a huge amount. But but eating – The monkey brains. Yeah. Yeah. yeah eating, eating yeah. I think the one that terrifies me most about Temple of Doom wasn't even the heart being taken out. Was the it was the crocodiles eating the bad guy at the end? Oh yeah. I think as a well, I'm you know upper elementary, maybe even middle school when I watched that one, and 
it's like you know 12 13 and it terrified me i don't know why but just like the thought of falling off of a bridge into a ravine full of alligators which is not something i'm gonna come across in my daily life but i just remember as as a kid being like utterly terrified of that prospect of of being eaten by an alligator yeah or a dinosaur you got jurassic park that in there is too. you know you're kind of cl- close close to that well, eaten alive i think is probably the scariest thing well you got jaws there too so i mean it, it but I like your your thought process at least. Jaws is in the ocean. He's confined, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and we didn't plan that we would all have a different answer to this. My answer is Jurassic Park. Oh, I, you- I actually think Jurassic Park would be the easiest to survive. Because unlike Indiana Jones, they're like a slight miscalculation. Because I would overthink like the spelling of Jehovah. Mm. Like I would think that, you know, spelling it in a certain form is, is would be way too obvious. And I, I, I would I would get like smoked on something that I knew the answer to initially. But then overthought it. Or even like seeing the cross on the floor or, or X-like or something like that. Like I would way overthink that situation. So um, I actually think the, the dinosaur thing would be, be fun. Like the whole atmosphere of being there alone on the island. Um, it feels so empty even though the predators are so prevalent and so massive. Uh, just the, the whole world of being cut off from that, waiting for that. You know, it is supposed to be a vacation for 10 days. And I mean, if you're going to be alone, you might as well be alone, right? Um, um, I know, I know. But but I actually think the whole Jurassic Park thing would be really really phenomenal, mm. um, just to see the the magnificent beasts in their their great size. Um, mm. Not to marvel at them. This is not like the idolatry of Revelation, but but just to see that and the the great terrors of it. Um, so we went to a Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park or the first Jurassic World. Would you want to go? Which which park would you want to go to? Oh, the first Jurassic Park, um, straight up. And I want that explorer too. <laughs> the, give me the the explorer that comes down the tree and let's let's have a good time. Um, so that, that that would be my take on this. I think it'd actually be pretty fun to see yeah. all the dinosaurs. It, it would answer um, just some curiosities I have. Nothing pertinent to salvation. Nothing that's like going to radically change the way I view the world. But just just to see them. be cool to see stuff like that. Um, I know it's kind of it is what it is. Well, anyways, <laughs> we'll wrap up this program there. So we thank you for spending time with us here at Kingdom of the Logos. We are a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure to stir your nerves and bring you to the edge of your chair as we discuss some interesting things in this world. And hopefully we've given you a break from the, the chaos of life and been able to point you towards some some more exciting things. God wants us to have joy. And there's a lot of ways we can find joy, but let us always move towards him in, in whatever path of joy we, we find. Because God has so many different gifts and graces for us, so many different beautiful parts of God's creation for us to enjoy. So as we we wrap this up, um, Pastor Mike, would you close us in prayer as we wrap this program up? Absolutely. Be honored to. Almighty God, we come to you and with uh, great joy in our hearts, realizing that you are our king. You are our our salvation, our hope, our joy, all of it comes um, from knowing you and the, and the, the blessings that you uh, lavish upon us, Lord, you are abundant in your grace. And so, Lord, we ask for you to, to use us to be a means of grace in this world. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the stories of the U.S. Marshal that we discussed earlier. And, Lord, we just pray for your blessing to be upon them. Give them the wisdom and uh, all the uh, necessary means to do the job of restoring life to these children and bringing them back and rescuing them because you are a God of delivering. Lord, as we uh, also look to missions, we help Heavenly Father that pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to be uh, mission-minded, not not to segment it, as Pastor Amanda said. That help us to be uh, a people who uh, practice missions as a part of our life. That we realize that every time we encounter someone, it is an opportunity to share the good news uh, that you are Lord. So, dear Lord, I pray for all of those who are watching. Uh, your spirit to rest upon them and may they feel your presence in all that they do in Christ's name we pray amen amen and just to make a quick clarification on the end of this the news site that has the information on the Iranian Christians is called article 18 check it out they've got some really really good information there and it's something that we should be praying about you know scripture tells us to, to pray for our brothers and sisters so with that we thank you for joining us God love you and have a blessed day